Yeah, so I'm excited to be with you today, and I'm excited now that we can jump into our passage of Scripture. Um, And first, I'm sure if you were here last week, you were like, wait, um, you completely skipped a section of Scripture. And we did, but don't worry, Frank is going to go back next week, and he's going to cover the first part of Hebrews uh, 4, verses 1 through 11. But I want to point out a couple quick things about that, that section as we move into our verses today. Last week... Frank reminded us that we're all capable of walking away from Jesus, right? We all have the ability or the propensity to wander. And after we're reminded of that simple truth, the author then moves to this definition of rest. It's it's important that you know that God is and was talking about rest as the goal, not just here on earth rest, but the rest that we find in eternity, living side by side with our creator in heaven, eternal rest with God. This is the essence of what Hebrews 4 is saying is the aim or the goal of life, to enter into rest with the Father. So let's talk about that for a moment. I want you to think of a time when when you actually felt at rest, right? You felt at peace. There was joy. There was no anxious thoughts. Just rest. You know, for me, um, I was on a missions trip. This is the time that comes to my mind. I was on a missions trip in Asia, and um, while I was there, we had about seven days on this side, and then there was three days in the middle and another five days on this side. And so those three days in the middle, we had the awesome opportunity to go to this amazing um, resort in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the sea. We literally had to take this wooden boat two hours uh, through the sea to get to this, this island. And we get to this island, and it's exactly what you can picture. There's, like, huts over water. There's, like, amazing white sand, clear blue water, random and weird animals you've never seen walking around. And literally, I'm laying there in a hammock. I've got my iced tea. There's some palm trees around. The wind is blowing. I've got a book. I've got some music. And literally, my only decision in that moment was, do I take another sip of iced tea or do I take a nap? Right? I mean, that's rest. No chore list. Nothing came with anxiety in that moment. Just iced tea or a nap. I'm sure there's probably a time in your life that you can think back upon when you had a similar encounter, when you felt completely at rest. Now, I want you to take that moment, and I want you to magnify it. Picture doing that with your loved ones. Picture doing that with your Savior. Like, Hey, Jesus, can you pass the Cheetos? Okay, I know. Yeah, that's a little broad overstatement, but it made me laugh when I said it. So the aim of life, the goal of this life is to enter into eternal rest with the Father. Take that moment in your mind and do that for eternity. Gosh, what a gift that will be. And in verse 11, before we get to our verses this morning, it talks about, therefore let us strive to enter that rest. So how do we strive to enter that rest? Well, that's the point of today's message. Basically speaking, we sin. 
We're capable of walking away from Jesus. And then he points us to eternal rest with the Father. And then we get to verses 12 and 13, and he answers how we can strive for that rest. And simply put, it starts with trust. Let me share a story with you. There's a a terminally ill man, and um, he's going to die in the next couple days. And he has one dying wish. And the wish is that he would be buried with his money or his cash. Sounds like not a great guy, but whatever. We'll we'll go on here. So he decides he's going to get three guys to help him with that. He gets a priest. He gets a lawyer, and he gets a doctor. Okay, you know it's a joke, so you know where we're going. But so the guy dies, and the priest comes in to the funeral, and he walks up to the casket, and he places a bag of money in the casket. And he bends down, and with tears in his eyes, he, he says something quiet to the dead man, and he walks away. And then the doctor walks in, and he does the exact same thing. He takes this bag, and he puts it in the casket, and he says something to the man, And he walks away. And then the lawyer walks in, and he walks all the way up, and he puts a bag in the casket, and he walks away. And now the funeral's over, and they're carpooling home. And the lawyer says to the priest, what did you bend over and say to the man in the casket? And the priest, with tears in his eyes, feeling guilty, says, oh, I had to confess. There's this orphanage, and these kids, they needed food. And so I took some of that money, and I I paid for them to have food, and then I put what was left, and I put it in the casket. And the doctor says, phew, that is so good because I was feeling so guilty too. There's this lady in my medical practice, and she needs this surgery, but she doesn't have money, so I paid for the surgery, and then I, uh, I had to confess it to the man, and I walked away. And the lawyer starts to get really really mad. And he looks at them and he says, how could you do this? This is their last, and this was his last and dying wish. And the priest says to the lawyer, well, wait, did you put all the money in the casket? And the lawyer looks at him and says, of course I did. I wrote that check for every penny. Trust, right? It's a hard thing. It's a crazy thing. It starts with the idea in this passage that we must trust God. We must trust what he's done for us. We must trust his promises. We must trust that his way is greater. We must trust that he died in our place, that he rose again, and that he's coming back. Trust. I don't know about you, But I know that trust can be a really hard thing. Trust, it's defined as the firm belief in the reliability, the truth, the ability, or the strength of someone or something. The fact of the matter is that when we trust in people, at some point, they're going to let us down. I mean, I love my close friends and my family, But if I go into life and I trust them 100%, I know that they're probably going to let me down at some point. Okay, wait. Our intent as a person is to probably always do the right thing and to not let people down. But we're fallen. So spoken another way, will you let people down? You will. 
We don't want to, but at the same time, we will. It's a part of life. But in order for us to strive for eternal rest, we've got to trust God. His promises, what he's done for us, his story, his existence, his ways. We must trust and believe that God is who he says he is and did what he said he did. For some of us who've got maybe some trauma in the past, trust can be a really unbelievably hard thing. You don't want to trust anyone or anything because it might lead to the same outcome it always has, hurt. But that's what the world can and will do to you. This fallen world creates doubt in us. This world screams lies at you all the time. This world is a big pile of confusing, messed up, set of reasons, beliefs, values that are in contradiction to the creator's way for us. So we're left in this fallen world. Lies are being thrown at us moment by moment. A growing distrust in relationships. There's hurt, there's pain. Let's be real, it stinks. This world is a hot mess, but we are supposed to strive for eternal rest. Okay, God, do you know what I'm living through? Do you know what's going on around me? God, have you watched the news lately? Like, you may be saying, God, did you know that I was abused as a kid? Or, or God, do you know that I'm estranged from some of my kids? Or, God, do you know that my closest friend or my closest family member was taken away from me way too early. How do I trust you with all of this? How do I live this crazy, broken life of mine and now trust you? And God says, verses 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Wait, how does that fit? The fact of the matter is, if you want to trust in God, the place to know him more, the place to understand his ways, the place to get insight into your life, the place to be encouraged, the place to be pushed towards belief is in his word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Isaiah 48, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. God's word, the Bible, it's the inspired words of God. It's not just a storybook. It's not a book like any other. God breathed these words through the authors. God used mere men to write and capture his heart. This means that the Bible is not a human creation. No, rather, it's divinely inspired, and it carries the authority of God's teachings and guidance for our lives. Basically stated, God wrote this book for you and for me. 
This is why God gives us a clearer picture of the relevance of the usefulness and of the authority of Scripture. The Word of God is living and active. When a human writes a book, its contents are merely documented. Doc- documented. Can, you, can you learn from it? Yeah, absolutely. Can it, can it change or inform you? Yes. But is it active and alive? No. But here God is saying the word of God is active and alive. The word active means that the word of God is effective, powerful, operative, able to produce an intended result. The word of God achieves God's purpose and brings his desired results. You guys know this. The Bible is made up of 66 books. The Bible reveals God's design for humankind. Approximately 40 authors contributed, spanning some 1,500 years. Law, history, poetry, prophecy, biography, letters written by kings and tax collectors and priests and doctors. They all authored scripture, but together they form one unified message inspired by one author, God himself. The word of God, it's like a seed. If it's nurtured, if it's watered, if it's tended to, it grows. The word of God is active. It's interesting here because the author starts to use words that are like, they're, they're science-like or they're, or they're medical, they're, they're surgical, joints and marrow. It's like a surgical context here. That's what God's word does. It cuts to the deepest layers of our being. With surgical precision, the word of God cuts deeply and precisely into our soul. You know, I believe the sharper than any two-edged sword and surgical terms are used here because we really have two options. If it's not done in a way of precision or surgical or with sharp instruments or getting to the heart of the issue, it could be dull non-surgical items that really just leave us bloodied and battered and really never get to the exact problem, just hurts along the way that never get to the core issue. The Word of God dives deep into our lives and reveals what is deep within us. It reveals the things we know about ourselves, and it reveals the things that you might not even know about yourself. The word of God is used to remind us of his ways, his truths, his paths. And if we listen, if we keep, it'll keep us from sin and destruction. And it points out our flaws and it shows us that maybe our thinking might be wrong. You know, as we study or we read the word of God, the Holy Spirit is at work in us. The Holy Spirit and the word of God combined point us in the right direction. It simplifies things for us. It helps us make decisions. There's knowledge in the Word of God. But if you're going to the Word of God for the pure fact of knowledge, you're missing the point. Knowledge is only about you. But because the Word of God is alive and it's active Knowledge should lead to and can lead to transformation. Let me say it this way. If you know a ton of deep theological things 
and you have all this stuff memorized and all these different things, but when people look at you, they don't see Jesus, you're missing the point. As a believer, we are aware, we believe, we understand how messed up we all are. Sin is enticing. And if we're honest, we sin multiple times in multiple ways every day. It's our nature. But the word of God here is to help us be transformed people. I love the verse, James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. He's pretty clear, right? I'm not sure about your perspective. But many times I think as believers we go to Scripture and we can kind of feel, I don't know, beat up, right? I mean, shoot. I read that and I'm doing that wrong. Or man, gosh, I did that yesterday. Or oh, so annoying. I still struggle with that one thing. That's the wrong view of Scripture. Yes, that happens, but it's a love letter to you to help you walk and do what is right and ultimately please God and one day enter into his rest. He written, he's, it's written to each of us here as a way to help our lives be deeply in relationship with Jesus. As I was studying this week, John Piper says it best when he says, these verses are not here to find the good and the bad in us. There's enough bad in me to make me feel awful. But he goes on to say, the issue is when the word cuts to the bottom, does it find a believer? Does it find faith in the promises of God and the scriptures? Essentially, as a believer, you should believe that the word of God is inerrant, that it's God-breathed, that it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting. So to dumb it down for my simple mind, what are you believing that's contrary to the word of God? We all know that this world is sending us wrong messages every minute, right? Satan's good at that, is he not? I mean, we have our phones and we're going through all the time, and probably 80% of that is just junk. Things like, if you just looked like that person, you'd be happier. If you chose this or that, you'd be happier. If you, you want to be with some other person, well, then you should do it. It's going to make you happy, right? I mean, if you want to eat junk food day in and day out, well, it's going to make you more content in the long run. So you should do that if you do this, if you do that. How do you know when it's a lie of Satan? His word. Look, there are lies that we believe in every day that navigate our choices. We're human. We're messed up. But the word of God is active and it's alive. And if you're reading it, if you're hearing it, if you're striving towards it, God will cut to the joint and marrow and show you what is true and what is not. But the key here is, do you believe it? Do you have faith in what it says? If you do, then you will try to do what it says. You believe that God's ways are the right way. This doesn't mean that you won't make mistakes. Oh, my goodness. 
No, we live in a constant state of hearing lies over us all the time, being broadcasted over the loudspeaker of life. But if you break away, if you read the word, if you have faith and believe, you will be transformed. I want you to sit here for a moment and just think, what lie am I believing, are you believing that you know is not a part of God's word? Maybe it's a lie of your work. Maybe it's the lie that you're in a sin that you're completely entangled in and you've 100% rationalized it. Maybe it's the lie that you don't need God. I bet there's something that comes to mind. I I was going through my email this week, and I found this list um, from my mom. She had emailed it to me, uh, and it's about myths versus truth. And she adapted this from uh, a book from an awesome worship leader, and her name is Laura Story. And her story and her book is called When God Doesn't Fix It. Listen to these myths versus the truth. Trials are a curse. No, the truth is trials are an opportunity. Myth. God's primary desire is to fix broken things. That sounds right, right? No, truth. God's primary desire is to fix my broken relationship with him. Myth. Salvation is gained by the things I do. Truth. Salvation is gained by what Jesus did for me. Myth. When things look dark, God is gone. Truth. When things look dark, God's light shines the brightest. Myth, the plan I have for my life is much better than the place where God has me right now. Truth, where God has me right now is the best place for me. Myth, the church is a building with services. Truth, the church is the people of God as they serve one another. Myth, the strength of my faith faith is based on how strongly I believe. Truth, the strength of my faith is based on the strength of my God. Myth, I gain by holding on. Truth, I gain by letting go. Myth, contentment begins with understanding why. Truth, contentment begins with asking how God might use this for his glory. Myth, I worship because I feel good. Truth, I worship because he is good. Myth, God can only use my story when there's a happy ending. Truth, God can use my story when I trust him in the journey. Myth, I'm defined by my past. Truth, God redeems my past and gives me a future. Myth, my story isn't worth much. Truth, my story is my greatest offering. Myth, God needs my help. Truth, God wants my trust. Myth, I must work to keep my dreams alive. Truth, I can rest when I release my dreams to the hands of a loving father. Myth, God is withholding what I want because he's punishing me. No, truth, God is withholding what I want because he has something better for me. Myth, God is indifferent to the desires of our hearts. Truth, God is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. And myth, things have to get better before I can get better. No, truth, my situation may never get better, but I can get better. Do you see the subtle ways that the enemy distorts our thinking? It's what screamed at us day in and day out. And without the word of God, you're in trouble. Truth is, you're at great danger if the word of God is not a part of your life. 
let's take, for instance, that in a day we have 24 hours. And let's say that for eight of those hours you sleep. I know, I know, many of us don't sleep eight hours, but, but, but go with me here. That means there's 16 hours in a day that lies are being broadcasted to our minds, our souls, our hearts, and we're just taking them in. Why do we think that a five-minute devotional written by some man with one little scripture verse in the top is adequate to keep us from unbelief? Five minutes versus 960 minutes in that 16-hour period. A half of 1% of our awake day is how we hope to allow God to speak truth and cut deep into our soul. My mom used to say, you need to camp out in a passage of Scripture. Sit there in it. Let it marinate in your life. The more that meat is marinated, the better it tastes. Live in Scripture. Camp out in Scripture. Hang out with the Word that's living and active and allow it to transform you. It takes time. Look, this is not a guilt sermon about how much you read the Word of God. I'm just saying it's a lie that many of us believe today, too. I don't have time. I'm too busy. I can't fit that into my schedule. And I venture to say that we make more and more mistakes and wrong choices because we're not allowing space for God to work, move, and transform our hearts and our lives. And then worse, we step farther away and we blame God for where we are and the mess that we've created. It's convicting, isn't it? It's convicting to me, I can tell you that. Finally, this brings us to verse 13. We've defined the fact that God's word, it's active, it's alive, it penetrates deeply into our souls, that at the end of the day, it's about either believing or not believing God's word. And now God goes on to say that nothing is hidden from God. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. God sees and knows everything. There is nothing hidden from God. Not your actions, not your thoughts not your motivations, nothing. We walk around and we choose wrong things, and God knows our heart. He knows your motivations and your heart when you choose things that look right to the world, but he knows that your motivations behind it are not. God knows. Listen to Psalm 139, 1-4. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. That verse in Hebrews, it mentions the word naked before God. Naked's I mean, it's scary, right? Naked is exposed. There's no hiding. I guarantee each one of us do not want to stand in a big room and be naked in front of a bunch of people. And honestly, if you do, 
there's some Bible verses for you too. But the reality is, seriously, you, mo you most likely don't see beauty in your nakedness. You would know of maybe a defect or something that you're not happy with in your body. It's the complete you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. God ties these scientific words or this imagery back here from that surgical nature we discussed earlier, cutting deep into our souls. And we have the chance to view this as ugly or nasty or gross or demeaning, but instead, God wants us to view this as a way to keep us from sin, deception, lies, and instead be filled with his promises, with his protection, with his ways. You know, the main point today is, do you believe that the word of God is active and alive in your life? You must first make that decision in your life, and then you've got to live it by reading, by hearing, by living in his word for transformation of your life. The application today, honestly, it's pretty simple. There's three. Number one, do you believe that God's ways are better than yours? Number two, do you spend time in the word in order to be transformed? to see, to hear, to decipher what's true and what's accurate. And as you lay exposed before God this morning, the third, what truth of God, what promises from his word are you not believing? You know, I pray that as you wrestle with each of these questions that you choose to live and to act as you trust God, and you believe his word is true and accurate and alive and right. Why? Because one day, all of this will be behind us, and we'll be at rest with him for eternity. Rest of no more fighting off the wrongs, no more battles with temptations, no more sin, no more pain. No. Rest with our Father. The bottom line is, Jesus is greater. And the Word of God testifies in an active and alive way to bring transformation to our lives. Why don't we run to it with passion and energy? Let's pray. Lord, I'm convicted. I know that many times I open up books and I read people's opinion about Scripture and I read this guy's thought and that guy's thought, but I don't actually sometimes get into the actual Word of God. Or it's a busy day and I've got too much going on and I go and I, I spend a minute in it. Five minutes, ten, whatever, God. Lord, I pray this morning um, specifically for the the person or the people here who don't believe yet, who haven't crossed from death to life, who haven't made that decision 
that your ways are right. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger, a desire for the word of God in our lives. That we would view it as a way to be passionate followers of you, to know deep in our souls what's right and what's wrong. And that we would use it to bring honor and glory to you so that one day, as the word of God penetrates our soul, we can be at rest with him for eternity. Lord, give us a hunger. Give us a thirst. Make Uniontown Bible Church a place that's known for the word of God in our lives. In Jesus we pray. Amen.